This is the Bigger Pockets Podcast Show 298. Well, multifamily, you control your destiny because this is NOI divided by cap rate. So if I can increase, you know, if, if I'm in an environment like today, all this stuff's a five cap. So every dollar I drive to NOI is 20 to value. You're listening to Bigger Pockets Radio, simplifying real estate for investors large and small. If you're here looking to learn about real estate investing without all the hype, you're in the right place. Stay tuned and be sure to join the millions of others who have benefited from BiggerPockets.com, your home for real estate investing online. What's going on, everyone? This is Brandon Turner. Today's host of the Bigger Pockets podcast here with the man, David Green. How you doing? I'm good. What's going on with you, Brandon? Hula Dance Turner. <laughs> Hula Dance Turner. Uh, you know, not much. I got some, uh, you know stuff going on. I got some cool real estate stuff going on right now. I'm working on uh, a possible another mobile home park. We'll see. I'm really digging those right now. And, uh, you know, just living the dream. How about you? I'm doing great. The real estate business is going as good as it's ever gone. I'm going to have my best month ever this nice. month. The, ag- up, the so. agent business? Yes. Being a real nice. estate agent. So I've, you know, I've, I've learned the investment side, obviously. Now I'm learning how to sell real estate. And luckily for me, there are so many bad real estate agents out there <laughs> that if you're just halfway good, you can dominate everybody. And as I'm on my way to becoming excellent, I'm going to take over the world. There you go. That's awesome. That's awesome. All right. Well, today's show, speaking of excellent, uh, is excellent. So today we're talking with a guy named Michael Becker. And Michael is a fantastic real estate investor who has done like seriously so many properties like over like I think he said he has over 6,000 units that he's bought. They've raised over $150 million in private lending or private syndication model. He later on talks about during the famous four three things that will go wrong when you're buying multifamily. I thought that was really insightful. Let's make sure you guys listen for that. And he talks about a recent deal like you guys I mean, this is incredible. Like they made like $10 million in profit using a combination of Burr, syndicating and selling a property, like $10 million on this deal in profit. Wait to hear this story. I mean, this guy is super aspirational because he's done just massive big stuff, but his advice is like right on for just like the everyday investor, whether or not you're looking for your first deal, or your hundreds. So anyway, before we get to Michael Becker though, let's get to today's quick tip. Quick tip. Today's quick tip is if you don't like your job, do not be discouraged because there are options out there for those who are willing to be flexible, adaptable, and learn new things. So a lot of people know I'm transitioning from being a police officer into being a real estate agent. And what I love about it is that though you're still working, it's still work. I can do it from anywhere. I can be in Hawaii talking with Brandon while my team is working on deals and I'm making decisions and communicating that via text message or voice message, right? Without having to be clocked into my nine to five. So a lot of people are here on bigger pockets because they're looking for financial freedom. And it depends how you define that when you know that you've achieved it. But it's definitely better than being in a cubicle your whole life, right? You don't have to wait until you hit financial freedom to leave the cubicle. There are many jobs out there where it's just to kind of serve as a halfway point where you can be making a good living, learning new skills, developing your abilities as an entrepreneur as you work towards financial freedom, where you don't have to just stay stuck in a job you hate until you get there. So being a real estate agent is a great opportunity if that's what you're looking for and you're already passionate about real estate, I'm actually going to be writing a book on how you can make six figures in your very first year as a real estate agent. So keep track of that. And then if this is what you're interested in, I highly recommend you get the book, The Millionaire Real Estate Agent by Gary Keller. Read through it and see if you like it. If you think it sounds really cool, consider getting your license and working on the side. And if it doesn't sound really cool, then you can check that off the list and move on to whatever the next idea might be. 
Yeah, that's really, really good. I mean, like you got your license and I've seen you just like really flourish at that because you have a good personality for it. So yeah, if you're listening to the show and you're like, I'm looking for something different, but I want to be involved in real estate, maybe consider that being an agent. And uh, yeah, I'm looking forward to your book. You know, it might be still another, what, year-ish away, who knows, but whenever it comes out, I'm looking forward to it. This show is sponsored by Airbnb. Did you know that I turned one of my first homes into an Airbnb? It's true. And it even helped me get the extra income I needed to launch my real estate career. So if you want to try your hand at making even more income with your property, Airbnb is the place to be. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Passive income without the property headache? It's possible. There's a way to invest passively in real estate and get monthly income without any tenants, maintenance, or property management. The Wealthy have been doing this for years, and if you're an accredited or high net worth investor, you too can collect cash flow without the headaches that come from owning rentals. How? By investing in a private real estate fund with PPR Capital Management. PPR's co-founder, Dave Van Horn, wrote the book on real estate note investing for BP. But he's not just investing in notes. Dave and his team also have an extensive background in commercial real estate. And with PPR Capital Management, they're strategically investing in both notes and commercial real estate nationwide. With over half a billion dollars in assets under management, PPR has provided individuals with a steady source of truly passive income since 2007 without ever missing a payment. Check them out at investwithppr.com. Again, if you're looking to get monthly passive income from an experienced team with a strong track record, go to investwithppr.com today. Take a second and imagine this. Immediate cash flow, above average rent, built-in equity, and a foolproof exit plan. No, it's not 2012 again. This is just what it's like to invest with Integra Development Group. They've simplified the real estate investing process so everyone can invest. With their new construction single-family rent-to-own homes, you'll get aggressively priced brand-new properties that have tenants in place now in one of the fastest-growing states in America, Florida. Here's how IDG's rent-to-own strategy works. You get exclusive access to inventory with aggressive pricing thanks to IDG's builder-partner relationships. Then, invest and collect immediate cash flow with tenants already in place at or very close to closing. With the demand for new builds, your tenants pay above-market rent so you rake in more cash flow. And you'll get built-in equity and appreciation with an already agreed-to purchase price at year three, helping the tenants become homeowners while you build wealth. That's investing simplified. So secure your next investment property today with Integra Development Group at IntegraDG.com. That's IntegraDG.com to start investing today. And now it's time to get to today's show. I will say one thing before we jump into it. If you guys have not yet left us a rating or review for today's show, or I mean for this show, the Bigger Pockets podcast, please do so. Uh, really helps us in the rankings on iTunes so more people will discover the show. And then do me a favor and let me know that you did. Shoot me a message over on Twitter at Brandon at BP or on Instagram at Beardy Brandon and let me know that you did. You can also let at David Green 24 know. And we just want to give you a virtual high five if you do. So thank you guys so much for supporting the show. And with that, Let's get to the interview with Michael Becker. All right, Michael, welcome to the Bigger Pockets podcast. How are you doing? Hey, thanks for having me. Doing well. Uh, welcome to the show. We're going to talk a lot about uh, multifamily today, but I, I hear from reading some stuff that you actually started in singles. So uh, maybe before we get into the, the, the big stuff, how did you get into real estate in general? Like why real estate? What sparked your interest and what came before that? And walk us through that. 
Yeah. So before I really got into real estate, my, my entree was being a vendor in the business. I was a longtime commercial real estate lender. So I worked for some community banks and the year in 2008, my bank got purchased by Wells Fargo. I spent the last, you know, six or so years of my professional career at a very large national bank. And uh, my, my professional life, all I did uh, all day was I was a commercial real estate lender. So I lent on all the major asset classes and income producing real estate. So I have background loaning in office, industrial, retail, in the last about five years of my, my banking career. All I did was value add multifamily lending. So that's really kind of how I got into it. So I was just loaning money to other people and kind of through that process, I just realized I was on the wrong side of all these deals, to be quite honest with you. It was just much better to be the borrower than the lender. So uh, so I decided to go out and do something about it. And really, when I first started, it was in 20, 2010, I believe, I bought my first piece of real estate, investment real estate. It was a great time, you know, a lot, a lot of good deals out there. And I was just a little nervous going into a larger partnership because at, at work all day, I was kind of the grim reaper for about two years from 2009, 2010. I did a lot of problem loan workout. And a lot of the issues I found are really kind of surrounded around people that had partnerships that kind of went wrong. So I wanted to do something kind of with my own money, with my own account. And I couldn't go out and buy a large apartment building, but I could put 15,000, 20,000 down to buy a little rent house. So that's kind of what I did. So I ended up doing about 16 of them. I buy out of foreclosure renovate, get tenant there, refinance, get my money back, roll to the next one. So I kind of did one after another, after another. And through that process, I just realized it wasn't very scalable. I mean, you know, I got to 16 rent houses and, you know, I live in, in Dallas, Texas, and, you know, all my properties were, were here and in Dallas, it gets hot in the summer, if, if you could believe that. So <laughs> it's probably my, my third or fourth HVAC call or something that summer. I kind of got frustrated. I took a, took a step back and then it's kind of reflected what I was doing at work all day. And, you know, I was a very successful commercial real estate lender and just kind of looked at my clients and I was like, you know, all these guys are out there, they're smart, you know, but I'm as smart or smarter than all these guys. I know more about this than a lot of the people I'm loaning money to that they were out there taking action. I wasn't. So I decided to go out and do something about it. So in about a little bit over five, the last five years, we, we bought, we're about to close on our 30th a large apartment complex. So it'll take us over 6,200 uh, units wow. to raise about 150 million in capital, done about six, 700 million in transaction volume of buying and selling in the last, you know, five, five and a half years. Wow. All right. All right. We got a lot yeah. to unpack in there. So I, I, I've been taking notes furiously as you've been talking. So first thing I noticed is like, I, first of all, I love that quote you said, much better to be the borrower than the lender. I like that. Like yeah. you're looking at all yeah. these people and you're like, I'm lending them money, but man, they're they're making a killing off these real estate deals. Uh, but yeah. also you mentioned that you noticed a lot of partnerships were kind of at the core of things going wrong on the lenders that you, or on the borrowers that you were, that were borrowing from you. Can you talk about that? Like, what do you, what do you mean by that? What, what went wrong on these partnerships and, and what have you seen actually work then? Yeah. If you go back 15 years ago, when a lot of these deals that kind of went south in 2008, 2009, really they were, they were being put together in 03, 04, 05. That's when a lot of these deals were put together. So you just had a lot of silliness out in the marketplace back then. You had really unsound lending practices and these people that just couldn't have any experience. Or, you know, a lot of, a lot of the times I would see, I know Davis in California. So a lot of people from his backyard, you'd have someone that had a little single family house, just happened to appreciate. So they pull out a half a million dollars and buy an apartment complex in Texas. You know, so go from one unit to 70 units or something, something crazy like that, uh, or there'd be a little partnership. So they just weren't very well thought out. So 
I'm in a, a business partnership. So my business partner is based out of Austin and we have two clear roles that we play and we have different but complementary skill sets to each other. Well, a lot of people were just kind of friends and they weren't really intentionally putting their partnerships together. So they didn't have the proper documentation within their the company agreement or their uh, operating agreement where they laid out kind of the, you know, those are, those are in, in play for when there's problems, you know, if everything's going well. That doesn't really matter what's in there. It was when you have problems and they just weren't very well thought out. So that was some of the reasons on top of all the other structural reasons, taking on too much debt or not being well capitalized, things things like that. You know, one thing that you mentioned that I really, really like about this was that you were you had no intention of owning properties at first. You were just working as a commercial lender. And in your desire to be really good at that business, you got exposed to other businessmen and you thought, oh, they're doing something better than me. And you were in a position to recognize that's my next step. I want to go there. And one of the things that our listeners struggle with is they they haven't got started yet and they don't know the path to get to where they want to go. And you get into this analysis paralysis where you're thinking, well, I'm not where I want to be. How do I get there? And you're kind of showing like, I didn't know I was going to get there either. I was just doing good at where I was and doors open. Can you talk a little bit about how your investing career has progressed to get to this point? Like what were the individual steps that had to be taken as you look back and you realize, man, this was like a turning point for me because I did this. It opened doors in this way. Yeah. So my, my, uh, what I had was I had a little bit of money. So I was a, you know, pretty, pretty well paid uh, employee. I did well. I got commissions and I was pretty frugal. So I saved my money and put it aside. I was a good boy in, in that respect, didn't have any debt. And then, uh, I so had that. And then I had my professional experience. So what I had was I had an ability to underwrite deal after deal after deal as a banker and putting loans on apartment complexes, as well as I got to observe all my clients. So, you know, some did better, some did worse. So, so through that process, I kind of got to get some best practices that a lot of people did. And then as well as more, more than anything, what I really had was I got to get networked, um, you know, being in, being in a pretty major market like Dallas-Fort Worth. I mean, there's uh, even in a major market, it's like this all over the country. There's only a handful of brokers, you know, it's probably six, seven shops that control 80, 80, 85% of all the, the deal volume. And they all knew who I was because I was an important vendor in the business. Like they would not get their commission until the deal closed and deal wouldn't close unless my loan went through. So I was a pretty key um, cog to that. So that's what I had. I mean, I just, I just wasn't utilizing it to the fullest advantage. So my biggest challenge was taking people's impression of me as a vendor from the business into being a principal. I mean, really, all you have to do is close a deal or two. And it's like that. I mean, you kind of slip, uh, turn the, the light switch on. They take you pretty seriously in the marketplace because, you know, uh, everything's in theory until you actually go out and do it. So that's really what I had. So uh, and that's easy for me to say because I had a lot of stuff that other people don't have. But, you know, if you're just a salesperson or engineer and you're trying to get into this business, you know, everyone starts with where they start. And one of the things I like to say is a completely unfair business is who you know, what you know, what chips you have. And it's also a team sport as well. So you got to kind of put, you know, if you don't have something, you got to find a, a partner or a vendor or someone that kind of bring bring something to the table that you're kind of lacking. So one of the things I, I kind of recommend people do, there's plenty of educational platforms out there. Bigger Podcasts obviously is, a, is one of the major ones out there. But there's also like local mentoring clubs, uh, you know, Dallas-Fort Worth, we have a few of them that are pretty reputable. So go go to the meetups, go to these mentoring clubs, go get networked with people that are doing kind of what you're doing. And if you have a little bit of money, but you don't have an experience, maybe you can find a partner that's done a deal or two kind of team up together. Um, you know, if you don't have experience, find a good, competent professional management company that come in and manage your deal for you. If you need to get a loan, get a good, competent mortgage broker. And then when you're going out to the real estate brokers that are selling these deals, you can kind of reference like, hey, so-and-so is my management company. He's the same guy that manages three dozen of these other similar assets in the market I'm looking to buy. So that's kind of like a check. It's like a transfer yeah. credibility to him. 
Or if I, if I, you know, I talked to this very successful mortgage broker that finances all these deals, he's reviewed my statement. He kind of gives me a letter of recommendation that kind of solves that problem. So the broker's really out there, not only trying to get the highest price for their, for their client, but they're really trying to assess your credibility as a buyer. So the more variables you take out by having these different reference points is you can, you can kind of present to them that you're going to increase your likelihood of actually getting a deal awarded to you, you know, exponentially. I love that. And, and like we could translate that really easily to like doing a single, you, know, you want to buy your first, you know, single family house or duplex or you want to buy a 200 unit apartment building is borrowing the credibility of somebody else. I think that's fantastic. And I love that you brought that up. I mean, like, let's say you're, you're trying to work, I don't know, for example, you're trying to work with a wholesaler, right? So you meet some wholesaler at a local real estate group and you want him to bring you good deals, right? You can be like, Hey, I want to buy a real estate deal. And that wholesaler is going to go to somebody if they're good they're going to go to their existing client base. But if you're like, hey, yeah, I'm working with this lender. I'm working with this thing. I got this property manager lined up. They're automatically going to be like, oh yeah, I know them. I worked with them before. And even if like, I mean, like, it's almost like you're not, I, I don't know. It's, it's, I want to call it fake, but like, it's not like that you've ever even worked with those people before, but just the fact that you use their name and that you've had conversations yep. with them, uh, someone's going to take you much more seriously. So I, I love that. What, I guess, do you have any, do you have recommendations for like, finding those people. I mean, like you mentioned a competent lender, a competent property manager. Obviously that makes a big difference. So how should somebody go about finding and how do you go about finding the best competent people? Yeah. So, so property management company, really when you're, when you're out there starting out, it's asked for referrals. So if you have a good mortgage broker, ask your mortgage broker for property management referrals, ask the brokers like, you know, Hey, you know, who, uh, what, what are the things the broker is going to give you regardless is if it's a listed deal, there'll be an offering memorandum. So the package on the deal and in there is going to be rent comps as well. So in, in this environment, they're going to kind of point out the comps that are doing a little bit better than the property they're selling. So go look at that property, say, oh, who's managing that property? You know, that's a similar property. The broker says is performing better than the property I'm looking to buy. So let me talk to that management company. So that'd be a good place to start. So, you know, within there, you'll find a couple of management companies that manage the properties in and around that are like kind, similar vintage, similar submarkets. And that's, that's kind of really where I'd start. And then, you know, the broker can certainly give you a reference to a commercial mortgage broker. They certainly do that. And then there's all these data services out there that, that certainly do it. Or if you go to the, the networking events in the area, just talk to other people doing deals and say, hey, who gave you this loan? It's, it's, it's really just kind of kind of get the boots on the ground, going out, getting networked and asking for referrals for these. You know, your two major vendors are really your banker and your, and your management company. And then your lawyer is probably third. Those are those are really kind of the, the three legs of the bar stool that you really need to kind of get in place before you're, you're ready to be taken seriously in the market place. Yeah, that makes sense. So I want to, I want to go back a little bit. You know, we kind of got an overview of your whole story. How many total units do you say? 6,500? Is that right? 6,200 farming units. Yeah, yeah. That's just insane. I love that. Uh, so, but let's go back to the first multifamily. So you, you bought 16, I think you said 16 houses and then decided that this just wasn't scalable, which, you know, I agree. I think, I think it's a great way to get started, but after that, you're like, okay, I want to scale this up. What was the first multifamily you bought? So about 120 unit apartment, a submarket of Dallas called Garland, Texas. It's built in kind of mid 70s, so called like a C asset and a C location, really. Okay, and so you jumped into that one. What was I guess looking back now? So your first multifamily, what what did you do wrong on that one, or do you feel like everything went really well, or what would you say? Well, I learned a lot since then. Yeah, so I think I think you know some of the the capital improvements. You know, the deal needed a little bit a little bit more money than we probably set aside on the front end. So we came in a little bit undercapitalized. So we certainly could have set aside a little bit more money, or maybe done a little bit more thorough physical inspection than you know, that first couple of deals we did. We we kind of made some mistakes along those lines where we didn't do 
as thorough of a physical inspection. You know, you, you walk all the vacant units, you walk the bulk of the occupied units, but you think, hey, those units are occupied. You know, they can't be that bad if someone's living in there. And that's, you know, not always the case. I mean, some of these people are hoarders and God knows what, you know, some of the stories we can tell you about yeah. stuff we've seen in some of these units. So not having <laughs> enough capital set aside, but fortunately, you know, we had enough to get it going. And, and you know, uh, the entire time I've been doing this, I've been, been a phenomenal environment. I've kind of called it like the golden age of apartment investing. You know, it can't be better than it's been the last five or six years. Cap rates have certainly compressed and come down, which... You know, we talked about that a little bit more, and that really kind of helps support the values and the rental rates continue to grow because there's so much, so much demand out there for for rental units, and and the supply just isn't keeping up. So that that's really been you know it was an absolute home run. The first several deals we've done, that one uh, being you know certainly an example of that. Cool. I want to jump in and ask you a controversial question that we don't talk about very often. Sure. You're exactly right about cap rates compressing and interest rates being really low. And that makes it easier to raise money than it would be normally, right? Because you don't have to offer much of a return and people are just desperate, like, take my money, give me a return. Do you feel this could be creating a bubble in the multifamily space? You know, that's that's uh, that's a uh, difficult question to answer. But, you know, kind of my thoughts are that's something we focus quite a bit on, that there's certainly some risk. The cap rates for everyone that, that doesn't leave any investor behind, really what a cap rate is, you buy a commercial real estate property. You know, basically you have your operating income, which is like your rent and your other income, like late fees, application fees, things like that. You subtract out of that all your operating expenses. So like payroll to your staff, property taxes, insurance, make ready units. And the difference between those two is net operating income or NOI. And so a cap rate is kind of how you can compare one property to another. So if it's, uh, for example, if we have $100,000 of NOI or net, net operating income and we sell it on a 10 cap, you basically take that NOI divided by the cap rate and it'd be a million dollars. And if that same cap rate was five, that'd be a $2 million for that same NOI. So what's really been happening is the cap rate. You know, I'll use my market as, as a good example. You know, you go back, say, David, five years ago in Dallas, Fort Worth, you could buy a brand new class A deal for a five cap. A B deal is about six and a half cap and a C deal is somewhere between eight and eight and a half. You fast forward five years to today, an A deal in Dallas Fort Worth is about a four and a half cap. A B deal is about a five and a C deal is about five and a half. So what used to be three, 350 basis points or three and a half percent spread from the top to the bottom of the market is now a, a percentage point or hundred bips or lower. And if it's a value add, some of these C deals are really even, even more compressed because there's upside in the deal. So people are paying even lower cap rates to have the upside. So that that's really where I'm kind of concerned a little bit that, you know, at the same time, the cap rates have compressed, the interest rates have ticked up a little bit. They really haven't run away, but they ticked up a little bit. So the arbitrage between your cap rate and your interest rate where, you know, the first couple of deals we bought on eight and a half cap, hard money at 5%. So we had, you know, three and a half percent spread and we're levered five to one. So we had an 80% loan. Now all these deals are levered 70% because the of, of debt service isn't there. You're borrowing money at four and a half and you're buying a deal at a five cap. So it's making these deals a little tighter. The cash flow is certainly a little tighter. So I'm a little bit more fearful of the bottom of the market than I am the top of the market because there should be a bigger variance between the top of the market cap rate and the lower market cap rate. And right now there's very little difference between. So I don't think the market's properly adjusting or pricing in the risk that comes with these older buildings of all the functional obsolescence, all the lower, ten generally speaking, a lower tenant profile from a credit standpoint, and they just don't have the money set aside. So that's certainly a little bit of an issue. Then on the top end of the market, you certainly have a lot of supply and it's all concentrated in the urban core. 
and top flight suburbs of all the major cities across the country. So there's certainly some risk in there with the new supply. So really kind of the middle of the market is really kind of where we we try to focus on kind of, I call it the B to A minus. So in Texas, where we buy, that's kind of about 1983 to 2008, that 25 year time horizon, that's the best part of the market. And we're targeting deals that are 10% or more below market rates. So, you know, the, the, um, the upside of the deal is also my downside hedge. You know, and then and then taking out longer term fixed rate debt will kind of mitigate some of the some of the risk in these deals as well. So I went on a tangent. I don't know if that answered your question, but that's sure. uh, kind of my rambling thoughts there. That's really good. In fact, I'm going to rewind that and listen to that later because that was that was very smart and intelligent answer. So I love that. So so short answer is yes. We you believe it is getting dangerously high. Do we believe? Do you believe? I mean, obviously, none of us have a crystal ball. Is a crash coming? Is a slowdown coming? Is this a slight back retreat coming? If you had to guess, what, what would you put your money on? Yeah, so I, I would be skeptical if I was in a uh, in a in a coastal market that has you know really rapid appreciation and their their the rent to rent to values out of whack. I think those like you know. LA, your, your, your San Francisco, if they repeal Costa Hawkins and they get rent control in California across all that, that would be an issue for me. I think here about New York slowing up quite a bit. I think the tax reform act that just got passed about a year or so ago, I think that's really kind of separating the markets from the coastal markets they're losing and the flyover markets like Dallas, where I live, they, they, they tend to be doing a little bit better because we don't have state income tax. So I think if you're in an area that's got, you know, um, you know, I'll, I'll answer the question this way. So the last time that we had a recession, there's really four things I've kind of noticed that caused people to have some problems. One, they bought in the hood. So, you know, it's buying a high crime area, low social economic area. Those areas tend to have have the biggest problems when we have a recession. Two, they came to these deals undercapitalized. They didn't do a good physical inspection. They didn't set aside enough money up front to cure all the deferred maintenance on the deal and implement their business plan. So one of the examples I like to use in Texas, it gets hot. So we had an AC go out and in summer, you don't have the money to spend a thousand dollars to fix it up. So you take a vacant unit, that's off a vacant unit, put it on an occupied unit. Now you have an unleasable unit and it kind of yep. snowballs and snowballs, right? The third reason really was people had improper management. So they had uh, you know, a UP, so a good example is we made a loan to a guy that was a literally UPS driver in California that tried to owner manage a deal in Dallas. So that didn't end well. I can tell you that at the end of the day. And then finally, you have a low maturity at that time. So, you know, when the capital markets turn off, it's like it's like a light switch is off. Right. So that kind of comes on a little slowly. So if you happen to have a low maturity in 2009 and you, you're cash flowing, you keep your keep your bills paid, but you have to, you know, your values temporarily down. You got to refinance it or sell it at a bad time. That's caused some problems. So I think if you kind of take out those four things, I think no matter what happens in the cycle, you'll do well. I think the areas that are landlord and business friendly areas of population and migration with job growth, those areas will do a little bit better. Just kind of stay away from where the new supply is. So kind of maybe go in the suburban markets versus the urban core in the areas and, you know, places like Phoenix, Atlanta, Dallas, Salt Lake City. Some of those types of markets, I think, are, you know, very going to do well no matter what happens. Uh, I'd be a little more nervous if I was in San Francisco or L.A. or New York. Yeah. Yeah, that makes that makes a lot of sense, actually. But you're still buying. I mean, you're still buying right now. Didn't I? Re- you're you're under contract on something, or right? Like, the, yep. so you're still doing this, even though the market is is hot. I, I think that speaks to like a lot of investors tell me. Well, I think I'm just going to wait until the market, you know, drops, and then I'll jump in. What do you say to those people? Yeah. So if you've never done it, then when the market drops, are you really going to have the stones to go put your money on the table yeah. when uh, when everything's tougher? You know, right now you can get capital, you can raise it, you can get the debt, uh, and those two things will become exceptionally more hard when there's a recession. 
because you're, you know, it's just a world. The world's just full of capital, and it's got to find a home somewhere somehow. So some of it goes in real estate, stock market, bonds, whatever. So if the if your your investors getting crushed in the stock market, they're not going to be likely to write you a check to go into an asset class that just declined a bunch. They're going to be they're going to be fearful. They're going to try to catch a falling knife. So if you don't have a a presence in the place, I don't think you're really going to be able to build as good of a presence, at least in some sort of scale, quickly in a recession. So that'd be the first way I'd answer that. Uh, the other thing is, you know, we just just set your deals up. Like I mentioned, there's four main risk factors that I kind of see. That if you kind of take steps to mitigate that, that you can, you know, you should be able to survive what, you know, any any way, any form. You know, in our markets, really the the people that were well capitalized had good located deals that pro- managed properly. They survived it well, and the and the values are materially higher today than they were, you know, at the peak of the bubble before. They were just able to have enough maturity and management in place and capital in place to kind of survive all that. So I think that that'd be kind of how I'd answer it. So just take out, you know, if you, you have a business plan for three years, take out a five-year loan or a seven-year loan or a 10-year loan, have a little bit of runway on the back end. So you're not forced to make a decision, at a, a capital decision at a bad time when the marketplace is on there. Just kind of hunker down, operate, and wait to come out the back end of the deal. That's and fantastic. also take a, take a little bit less leverage today. That, that'd be the other thing I would say. Don't, you know, the lenders are pretty prudent today. So whatever the next event is, uh, lenders aren't giving out, you know, crazy loans anymore. So these loans are closer to 70% where two, three years ago, you get 80% pretty much on everything. Yeah. I think, I think the lenders see the writing on the wall that something, you know, eventually will, it will, I mean, real estate is cyclical. Everybody knows that uh, at least in, in a way. So fantastic. All right. So I want to, you, you mentioned how right now is a little bit, I I don't know if easier is the right word, but like whatever you said for raising money, like today you can do that because people are feeling good and the economy is doing great. So I want to actually spend a little bit of time there because you mentioned earlier you've raised, I think you said $150 million in capital. Yeah, a little bit over. Wow, that's like, that's crazy, right? Like I've raised like, (laughs) like 1% of that, not even, right? So like, (laughs) how how did you, the very first time you raised money, was it on that first deal? Yeah, it's really hard, right? So starting out is really hard. So I was fortunate on the first first several deals we did. My now business partner uh, was working for a broker out of Beverly Hills at the time, and he had access to a couple of high net worth guys. So I took a very small promote or a very small cut of the deal on the first several deals we we did. And I just had one equity check on the first several deals, which kind of set me up to get some credibility with the brokers and a track record. And then I went over into the syndicated route where now we raise a $100,000 minimum and uh, kind of go out and raise, you know, last year we just raised $27.5 million and I had 170 people and, and one, one webinar, one 90 minute webinar, we got all the money in the bank in less than 30 days. That's so awesome. I didn't, I didn't start there. That takes, you know, yeah. a lot of effort to get there, but that's kind of how I did it. All right. So I want to, I want to touch on this. You mentioned the first deals, you didn't take as much of a cut because yep. you realized that you needed the experience you needed the knowledge. You needed the, the, that, that part of things more than you needed the capital. And this is something I see newbies make the mistake all the time. They yep. get into a real estate deal and they want to do it. And they're like, no, I want to do a hundred percent. I'm not going to split this with anybody. I don't want to, I don't want to lose any money. Everyone gets a little bit greedy at the beginning. They don't realize that that first deal will likely never make you rich anyway. Like the whole point of the first few deals, right? Is to get the competence to be able to do the later deals. That's uh, right. And so that's, I love that you mentioned that. Even like you're talking on on big deals. Now you mentioned high net worth individuals. What percent, I don't know percent wise, but like are most of your investors typically like just uber wealthy people? Or are they more like, you know, the guy's got the a, a Roth IRA with a couple hundred grand sitting in it 
Uh, what do you typically target for raising money? Yeah, so when we first started out, we did a few more like what I call joint ventures. So it'd be like one rich guy and then us. And so they would write, you know, 90, 95% of the check and then we write a very small percentage of the check. So we did, we probably did eight, 10 deals like that. And then we kind of really transitioned over to do more of the syndicated structure. So it's just your normal, your normal rich guy instead of your, your really rich guy. So someone that has the ability to write a hundred or $200,000 check. So I think for 20, 2017, I did like, 500 K1s. And I think 2018, I'm going to do almost eight, 900 K1s. So, you know, we have a pretty, pretty deep, I'm probably 600 unique investors at this point, somewhere along those lines. So, you know, we, we kind of just, we, we, we branded, you got to get, you got to get out there. You got to get some presence doing podcasts. We host a little podcasts, uh, you know, out there as well. I go to events. I, um, you know, I partner with other people strategically that have big lists. They'll come in with me and we'll kind of split up the, the, the promote is what we call it or carried interest in the deal. We'll kind of split it up Will they take a portion. I take a portion, but then I can expand my list and my reach to, to their their reach. And oh, so, that. you know, you don't have to do everything on your own. You know, you just need to kind of be realistic about what you have and then try to find a solution to solve the, the problem that you have. So we've done a couple of varieties of different ways and then nothing, nothing is better than returning capital to your investors. So you turn capital, they'll tend to give it back to you and then tell all their friends about it. So then you can kind of grow your list that way organically. Yeah. I wanted to ask you how much of this is now just rich people telling other rich people, Hey, I found a, a good way to make more money. You should come over and invest with this guy. There's a good chunk of that for sure, and then you really one of the the, the last year we did. We just I was I partnered with a uh, with a with a firm out of San Diego that has you know tens and tens of thousands of uh, of clients, and so we just kind of hit their list to then raise capital from. And and I don't have that list, and they did, and they don't have the deal, and they don't have the the, the relationships with the brokers and the expertise to run it, which I do. And so it was a really good marriage that we were able to kind of partner up and. You know, they had what I needed and I had what they needed and we were able to strike a deal and do a deal. So, you know, you don't need to have everything. You just need to have access to it. So that once again comes back to your point you made earlier about networking and meeting people and growing through the relationships that you're building. Because rather than you saying, man, how do I look something up on Google? Like, where are rich people and how do I find them? You're, you're just going to the resources <laughs> you already have, right? And you're working them. You, you didn't need to understand every step along the way before you got started. You're like, well... Who do I know that can help me move in this direction? And then it worked well, and then word spread, and then it got easier. So tell us a little bit about that. I guess that's kind of where I'm going is, what have you learned about relationship building as far as how it helps you in a business sense? Yeah. So the first thing I, I like to say is no one's ever going to come to my office or my home and give me money or a deal, right? So you got to go out and get it. So you got to get, you need money. You need to go to places where, where rich guys are. And, you know, preferably, I think, you know, you guys host several events, you host meetups. I mean, those would be a good example of a place to go. So you go to a meetup and these people are interested in real estate and there'll be some people that have no money and there'll be some handful of people in that room just trying to network and meet sponsors of deals so they can kind of co-invest with or be a private lender or you know, whatever they're looking to do. So go to events. That's a good way to, that real estate events, networking events, educational events. Those are good ways to go out and start networking people with people. If you become a thought leader in, in an area and you go out and I, when I tend to go to events, I'll, I'll tend to be a, a presenter or speaker at an event. And then I don't, you know, I'm naturally a little bit, a little bit shy. So I don't, you know, it's not a natural thing for me to go out and network. But if I find, if I'm on the stage, then when I get off stage, I get to stand in the quarter, corner and people will come up to me. I don't have to be the person <laughs> initiating the conversation. So, so I've, I've gotten myself out of my comfort zone to go present or do a podcast like that. And the people will seek me out. So you can be like a magnet, attract the money instead of, instead of pushing at it. 
then on on That's the cool. deals, you know, just going to the events where the brokers go. So the brokers don't go to those meetup events. Brokers go in apartments to the National Multi Housing Council event every every January. That's where every major broker in town is going to be. So I need to go to that event to get networked. Or they'll go to that, like for a good example, Marcus and Millichap is a major broker shop all over the country, and they have an annual. Uh, multifamily event in Dallas-Fort Worth coming up next month and do it all on the major cities. So you know who's going to be there is all the brokers of Marcus and Millichap are going to be there that sell apartments. So I spend $300, I buy a ticket, I go to the event, and then I get to talk to everybody and they're, they're captive at their event. So I can get in front of them and, and, and see them. So, you know, those are, those are the things that, that I do. You just need to be intentional and specific about your actions and go to places where you're likely to set yourself up for success. If I'm trying to pitch all my my loser friends from high school that they should give me money to invest. <laughs> that's, that's not that's not a good use of my time. That's it's so smart though. Yeah, I, we, really we, I, your method is actually called brandoning, where you just go to a room <laughs> and you stand against the wall, and it helps if you're six foot five because everybody can't help but notice. <laughs> six you, foot right? five and a half and, and a half. Don't forget that half, <laughs> David Green. Even easier, right? And then you just wait for someone to come talk to you because they see you standing over there. You don't have to go hunt them down. So you go to where the people are and then you wait for them to come to you. It's yeah. very similar to fishing, right? Like fishing, you don't sit at home and wait for fish to come swim up to you and cross the land and jump into your, uh, to your uh, live well. You go to where fish are and then you throw out a hook with bait that they want and you wait for them to bite it, right? And I yeah. think it works for almost any business, no matter who you are. If you're a plumber trying to grow your plumber business, that yep. will work is you go to where you're likely to find people that own homes. And then you find something appealing about yourself so that they're going to like you. And then you become their plumber and they call you and they need something. So that was fantastic advice for everybody who's out there frustrated, not knowing what to do. Step one, find where the people are that you want to connect with. Step two, make yourself some form of bait or more attractive so that they're going to want to talk to you when you're there. And if you can't be six foot five and a half and just find <laughs> something else about yourself, that you can change so that you, you'll get noticed. You know, the other thing is it's all relative too, right? So if, if I'm in a room and I've done one real estate deal, I bought one rent house, I did one flip, and I'm in a room when everyone else has done zero, I'm 100% more experienced yep. than they are. Yep. So it's all it's all relative. I mean, that, 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 that's really it. You don't need to be intimidated and and you just, just got to put yourself out there. That That's really it. Yeah, that's true. Very good. So, all right. So for somebody who's listening to this and saying, you know, I really want to raise money for a deal, you know, whether it's a large multifamily or maybe something smaller, but they don't have those relationships necessarily yet with wealthy people. Like what is the, what is like the first step they should do? Is it to go to a conference? Would you recommend that? It's go to a meetup. Is it to, I don't know. What is it? Yeah. So you need to have a base level of education. You need to be able to speak uh, the jargon. You need to speak yeah. somewhat intelligently about it. So if you don't have that, stop what you're doing, get, you know, get a base level education. And then once you have that, then like I said, be intentional, you know, go, go to events where, you know, meetups and the weather, uh, people who are interested in investing in real estate would be start building your list out, you know, start getting getting coffee meetings, calls, build out like, a, you know, it's easy for me now because when we raise capital mechanically, when I first started doing it, we just have a bunch of telephone calls. So I'd shoot you a package and email. I'd be on the phone and had the first couple of deals, we had to raise a million eight for a deal. One of the first deals I did and I had to get, you know, a hundred thousand on minimum. So I had to get like 13, 14 people, I think was what it took. But I had to do like 30 calls to get 14 people to give me their money to invest in the deal. That's horribly inefficient. So now what we'll do is we'll do a webinar on a Tuesday night in the evening and then we'll record it. 
So that's good. To, you know, people can attend live, can, can attend live. The other people have a recording, so it's an efficient way to raise money. But what it also does is now I have my the, the deal package for the deal we put together, the PPM and the business plan, as well as a webinar of recording me presenting the deal. So when I meet you new, David, I can say, hey, David, here's an example of a deal I did. And then I can say, hey, you know, let's have a 10-minute call. You watch this. Any questions you have, you call me back later. But the forms and the presentation will be very similar on every deal I do. So that kind of shortcuts it. Then when I have a live deal, it's like, already comfortable with me. They're already comfortable with my presentation. Now, do they want the deal or do they don't want the deal? That's, that's really essentially it. So, so the more, you know, you need to do that on a smaller scale, give them some information, send them an article, something relevant about multifamily or self-storage or wh- whatever you're doing, uh, particularly, and then start just dripping on these people, get a list and just try to get in front of them and try to be, you know, somewhat of a thought leader in, in whatever subject matter that you're trying to uh, syndicate capital for. So you brought up a very interesting point we don't hear about very often. And Brandon, I want to get your opinion on this too, because this is kind of like right up your alley. You mentioned using a webinar for the purpose of pitching your thing, which is easier to do one webinar to 50 people than it is to make 50 phone calls and say the same thing over and over. And I'm just getting to this in my own business as a real estate agent, where I'm getting the same phone calls about the same stuff and having the same conversation and starting to be like, man, I'm spending a lot of time talking to people about getting their license or how to step up their game as a real estate agent, whereas I could just make a recording of it and send it to them or, or do webinars. Can you tell me a little bit, both of you, about what you found makes a good webinar, what people need to know if you want to start doing this to be successful, like what skills they should build up, what software to use, stuff like that? We'll start with you. Uh, you know, we just use go to webinar when we pitch deals and that's, that's really it. Then, like I said, we, you know, if you could get some content out there, either through webinar, start a podcast, start a blog, something along those lines. Those are just kind of not in your face ways to present content out there. And like you guys, I mean, you're at what, this is episode 298, I think is what you, what you guys told me. So they have 297 other examples. They can listen to you guys talk. And over that time, either people you're going to promote or expose yourself as a fraud, you know, or promote yourself as, you know, competent. So, I can listen to 297 hours of you guys talking. Neither I feel comfortable with yep. you or I don't. You know, it's hard to hard to fake it over that many hours. So that's kind of what I would do. So go to webinar, podcast, blog, start putting content out on a regular basis and be consistent and kind of drip on them more than being in their face. So that's kind of the, the, the method I've chose to do. Yeah, I love that. Yeah, I mean, I obviously do the, we do a, a webinar every week on bigger pockets and we're like teaching different real estate topics, like, you know, how to buy a, you know, multi, like this week I'm doing one on multifamily. Well, I guess it depends on what week this comes out, this episode. But anyway, I'm doing one multifamily. I've done yeah. single family, right? I, I, I kind of look at like, there's like five, five or six things I love about webinars. And this applies across the board. I mean, if you're an insurance agent, I think webinars can be powerful. If you're an, a, a mortgage broker, if you're a lender, if you're raising money, if you're, you know, a real estate agent, whatever. I just love webinars because of these like five or six things. Like, First of all, they're scalable, like you just said, right? You can get multiple people. You don't have to give the same conversation over and over. There's like the celebrity factor. And this is like hard to quantify, right? But like when you're on a webinar teaching, you instantly are seen as sort of a celebrity, even if you're not at all, even if like, but you're you're the one teaching it. You're like, kind of like, I don't know. You go to a wedding, right? Like the, the bride and groom are like the celebrities at that event. Everyone wants to go talk to them, right? When you're teaching a webinar, you're the celebrity in that space. Also, it establishes credibility. Uh, anytime you're teaching people, especially teaching in front of people, establish that credibility. It also builds relationships at scale. I talk about scalable in terms of like growing your thing, but it, like people, how many people come up to like podcast hosts or webinar hosts and say, I feel like I know you. 
Like yeah. people listen to the show right now. How many of you guys think that you, like you feel like, you know, me or Michael or David now, cause you've heard us talking before, right? Like it builds relationships and that's huge for being able to raise money. And then you're also just giving good information. Like, yeah, well, and then lastly, you're collecting contact information, right? When you use like go to webinar, you're getting their, con- your, their email address. And now you can email them again later in the future and on future deals. And so, yeah, I'm a huge believer in webinars. Like they're one of the most powerful like marketing tactics in the entire world. So yeah, people look into, look into webinars. They're good stuff. <laughs> All yeah, right. One thing yeah, I've heard people say real quick, Brandon, before you put <laughs> this on is that I don't remember what the breakdown was, but it was something like you learn 40% of what you read, 50% yeah. of what you hear, 60% of what you see and 90% of what you teach. And when you have to teach somebody, it exposes the, the gaps in your own knowledge very, very quickly, right? Yeah. And it's also a very powerful motivator to learn more because you don't want to look stupid <laughs> or mislead people when you don't know something. And so putting yourself yeah. out there and being like, I'm going to be the thought leader, like you said, Michael, I'm going to be the meetup organizer. I'm going to be the webinar presenter forces you to step up your own game and your own knowledge and learn more. And that will make you a, a higher producing person in general. So I think, I mean, it's, it's a little bit risky because you're putting yourself out there, but it, that's how you grow so much faster. Okay. What were you going to say, Brandon? Well, I was going to say the other cool thing about webinars is that like you put your slide deck together first, like you probably put together a pitch deck, right? Michael, yeah. like, right. And so like, yeah. you're not just like, people often think that you're like, when you're speaking, you're just like standing up, just making things off off the top of your head. You're not, you're like, <laughs> you have a slide and it's in front of you and you're just basically explaining what you already put together. So you know it because you put it together. Right. So do you have any tips for people who are trying to raise money, Michael, on maybe a webinar or maybe in just one on one with somebody like anything yeah. that you found that works better or worse in, in those kind of conversations? Yeah. So some of the some of the early mistakes that I did is you, you kind of, I, I could tend to get a little wordy or I'll go down the rabbit hole of, of the deal and get into the minutia where honestly, these people that, that invest with us, a lot of people, you know, first and foremost, so they don't trust you and like you as a person. They're not going to give you their money no matter what, you, what yes, deal it is. Yes. Right. So that's first and foremost. So having certain level of trust to then get them to like you enough to get on the webinar or listen to you, it's kind of first and foremost. And then once you get into the deal, they want to know, you know, okay, so how much is it going to take to get in this deal? When am I getting my money back and how much uh, along the way? So how much and when am I getting my money back? So you need to start with that. And then you can then get into how am I going to do all of this? You know, I'm buying this deal on the rent comp support, you know, 10% or yeah. 20% higher rents down the street. But if you don't hook them on the front end of this deal with, this is how much I need. This is when it's going to close. This is, you know, yep. how much money you're going to get back the timing of that money. You can go for an hour and then the people are like, well, I don't even understand the basics of this deal. Yeah. So that, that's some of the mistakes I made on the front end that now within the first five minutes, you know, all that in my deal. And then I get into the, the granular detail. Cause I some people, that. that's all they need to know. If they trust me, they're like, all right, I'm going to sign off and I'm going to send my check in. I mean, that, that, that's, that's really it. Yeah. I'm a huge believer that like when raising money, you're talking to like, when you talk about like people like raising money, not necessarily lenders, lenders go deep into stuff, but when you're raising money from people, I would guess, I don't know, maybe you have a different number, but I would guess 90% of people don't even look at the numbers that closely. They just trust you because they've had a friend that trusted you or whatever. Cause I've said this before, at the end of the day, they're not calling up tenant in 905A saying, hey, how much is your rent? I want to double check that and make sure that Michael here has the rent number right here. I mean, they're, at the end of the day, it all comes down to do they trust you or not? Because you could just be making up all your numbers on the, on the, you know, like on stuff as well. You could be doctoring PDFs of the tax returns. Like you could do anything you wanted in today's world. So do they trust you or not? And yeah, like you said, keep it simple up front, especially. I love that advice. Like this is what the deal is. This is what you're going to, where we're hoping to get you. Yeah. 
Yeah. Fantastic. Yeah. The other thing I would say too is there's uh when you're raising capital, one of the one of the questions a new syndicator always asks me is like, well, how do you structure your deals? Yep. Uh, so there's a many ways to do it. You make it simple or complicated. I would err on the side of simple. So just have like a you know basic. Maybe there's a small upfront fee, like an acquisition fee or something along the line. So keep that relatively small. Have an even easy split. You know, typically the deals we do is like an 80 20 split where the sponsor gets 20, the 80, uh, the investors get 80. And then there's like an asset management fee, kind of something on an ongoing basis, so on revenue. So so we can kind of keep our lights on, pay for overhead staff, things like that. Yep. So keep it simple. The other people will pay like a prep with their waterfall split that's graduated up an IRR. <laughs> and then I have to explain what the hell all that stuff means to yep. anyone, anyway, because they don't know what it means and it gets complicated. So simple is better, you know, especially if you're raising. You know, capital from just individual high net worth people, fifty thousand, hundred thousand at a time. You get down the weeds. I mean, that's stuff that that you know, guys with MBAs that I, you know, I certainly don't have. That's what they want to see, and that's not that's not what you're just your typical salesman, doctor, engineer yep. want want to see. Well, I remember. So uh, you know, a lot of the syndicators I know, like that, that are like the real. I mean, like the guys they have the waterfall IRR that, you know, all that fancy stuff. And so I thought I need to do that. So I was raising money for a mobile home park deal I was doing and I'm sitting there trying, I mean, for days I was putting together these really fancy spreadsheets that were like, you know, really like waterfall stuff. And cause that's what I'd seen done. And then I called up my buddy, Andrew Cushman, who's, uh, who's been yeah. on the show a few times. Right. And Andrew's I made Andrew like, alone. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Andrew's fantastic. Yeah. He's like, Brandon, yeah. what are you doing? Just keep it simple. He's like, just do like, a, you know, I think we'd ended up, it was like a 70, 30, like, flat and it was like suit and i was like i can do that and he's yeah. like yeah he's like no he's like when you start confusing people like you, you know you, i'm not raising money from you know a private equity firm here like they're not going to look up my numbers that deeply so if i confuse them they're going to say no when i keep it simple people are like oh yeah that sounds good and yeah. uh that's that, that changed my life that conversation so yeah, yeah. confused mind doesn't buy right you gotta there keep you go. it yep. simple go forward yep that's exactly right. you're exactly right about that yeah. When people ask me all the time, like, how do I recognize if this syndicator is good or not? I get that question. People call me all the time and, and I don't mind that at all. The thing I tell them, the number one thing that matters to me is more than like reading the, the PMM and the prospectus is that what's their track record? How many times have they done this and how well have they done it before? Right? Yep. Like it's very hard if you've done it, if you've hit it out of the park 19 times in a row, that you're 20th, all of a sudden you're going to make some huge mistake that you couldn't have saw coming. But if it's your first deal or your second deal, there's a very good chance that you don't even know what you don't know yet. And you could have the best intentions and you just get sideswiped by something you didn't see coming. So that just goes back to show that though getting those deals under your belt, if you have to give away a big part of it just to get it done is valuable because it's moving you along that path where your track record is the number one most important thing when it comes to raising money. More than some incredibly complicated waterfall that some yeah. MBA from Harvard wrote up for you that you spent $80,000 to get made and like... <laughs> You don't even understand it yourself. So how are you going to explain it to your investors? That's right. Yeah, definitely. All right. So we are about ready to shift over to the next segment of our show uh, where we want to learn about one of your deals in particular. So this is the deep dive. Remember when you had to pay to get a lead's phone number? It was like the dark ages. Until Deal Machine made skip tracing a thing of the past. Now, with your Deal Machine plan, you'll get unlimited access to phone numbers and contact information for no extra cost. That's right. Get high-quality, reliable information trusted by leading financial institutions, all fully compliant with the federal do-not-call list. 
explore over 150 data points, including age, gender, marital status, occupation, and a ton more. Trust me, this is the data you need for off-market deals. With new filters, people flags, and color-coded phone numbers, lead management just got a ton easier. Ready to step up your investing game? Sign up for a Deal Machine plan today and gain immediate access to this unlimited treasure trove of contact information and phone numbers. Just head to dealmachine.com BP. Transform your lead generation and deal-making strategies with Deal Machine. Sign up today and start exploring the unlimited possibilities at dealmachine.com BP. This show is sponsored by Airbnb. Did you know that a long time ago, before I ever started my real estate business, I turned one of my first primary residences into an Airbnb? And that's the extra income that I needed from Airbnb that gave me the confidence to go out and work for myself and eventually quit my nine to five job. And now I have dozens of Airbnbs all over the country. I've even partnered up with the old David Green on a recent property in Scottsdale to take our portfolio to the next level. And of course, we host it on Airbnb. But you don't need to be a full-time real estate investor to start on Airbnb. As a matter of fact, I was self-managing 10 properties while working my 9-to-5 job, so I know anybody can do it. Think about it this way. You're looking for extra income and going on a vacation. Wouldn't it be great to rent out your space and let your property pay for itself while you're gone? I did this one time. I pitched my wife and my roommate because we were house hacking on the idea of renting out our home, and it paid for all of our expenses on a trip to Mexico City. So go and give it a try. It might just change your life just like it did mine. And I really do mean that. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Calling all property owners and operators. Are you managing a multifamily property and looking to elevate your residents' living experience? Introducing Quantum Fiber Internet, your go-to choice for speedy internet your residents will love. The process is as seamless as Quantum Fiber service. Starting at just $50 a month, your residents can enjoy fast, reliable internet that will make them love where they live even more. Connect with your local fiber representative today. Learn more at q.com slash go big. I wonder how they got that domain. That's q.com slash go big. Limited availability. Service and rate in select locations only. Taxes and fees apply. 360 Wi-Fi and other equipment lease charges, taxes, and fees are excluded from price for life offer and may be increased. Listen up, business owners, because I've got some quick little math for you. Fewer costs equal more profit. The problem? You're spending more than ever on operations, materials, deliveries, software, and more. So why not reduce your costs and headaches with NetSuite by Oracle? NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform and one source of truth. Oh, also, NetSuite lives in the cloud, which means you can reduce IT costs with no hardware required. Cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because now you've got one unified business management suite. You can improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. It makes sense that over 37,000 companies have already made the move to NetSuite. So don't let rising costs sink your business growth. And by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash biggerpockets. NetSuite.com slash BiggerPockets. NetSuite.com slash BiggerPockets. All right, let's get to the deal deep dive. This is a part of the show where we dive deep into one particular deal of yours, and uh, we want to know a whole lot of stuff. So what is the deal? What do you, what, what do you want to tell us about? And then we'll dive in deep on it. Yeah, so I'll, I'll talk about the 
property of a, a purchase. We sold it about a couple of months back. So that's a recent, recent transaction we just went full cycle on. So the deal with the time we purchased it was called Regional Place Apartments, which is probably one of the worst names of an apartment complex I've ever heard in my entire life. That is hilarious. And, uh, yeah, yeah. We it was, you said it. Reasonable Place Apartments? Uh, no, no, Regional Place. Uh, regional Place. That would have been worse. <laughs> uh, yeah. If it even Regional Place, like it does exist in a region. Yeah. That's yes, funny. It's, it's that's a funny. place in a region. For sure. <laughs> that, that, that sucked <laughs> when we bought it. So. Vaguely named apartment building. That's yeah. Name. So it was a 218 unit apartment complex in suburban Dallas of a submarket called Grapevine. It was built in the mid 70s. We purchased it for 10.9 million dollars. It was about 50 thousand dollars a unit. We owned it for four years. About two years into it, we were able to to put a uh, we had a Fannie Mae loan on it. And Fannie Mae loans allow what's called supplemental financing. So basically, it's a second lien cash out note. We were able to return all our money. About we we put 2.7 million down. Wow. About halfway through, we returned all the money plus a little bit about two years into it. And then when we sold it, we sold it for $23.5 million a couple of months ago. I uh, put it, put over $10 million on 1031 accommodator. So we had all our money out. We still took 10 million bucks in. We bought a brand new deal with the uh, one from 1976 to 2015 vintage that we just closed on two weeks after, uh, after we sold it. So that's, uh, that's the deal we did. Wow. Uh, okay. I'm going to, I'm going to unpack. Yeah. I want to unpack that here. So I just make sure I got every number here. Right. So you've, so first of all, so it was a 218 unit in Dallas, 1970s yep. thing. How did you find it? Did you, did you say how you found it? Was I just broker? No, I did. So, okay. so yeah. So uh, all these deals, you know, predominantly we've done one or two maybe where there's no broker involved. This was an off-market deal. So, so a broker brought it to me. So he was bidding on it. He was competing with some other brokers to try to win the listing. He didn't think he was going to win it. So the broker's playbook and one of the tips that I'll give somebody, if you're you're talking to brokers that are giving brokers opinions of value or BOVs, um, if they're not going to win it, it doesn't hurt for them to try to slam an off-market offering. So we just threw an LOI in. The owner, the owner accepted it. Uh, and, you know, we kind of went forward. So so we, awesome. we bought the deal off-market. All right. You said $10.9 is what you bought it for, which was like 50K a unit. That's awesome. And then negotiation wise, did you have any interesting negotiation things in that? Uh, anything that yeah. went wrong or right? Yeah. So, so the deal had, uh, you know, Texas, we, we tend to get pretty large hailstorms. And so this property had a, had a large hailstorm about a year or so before we agreed to buy it. And so they had a, they had like a $2 million hailstorm. It was crazy. So all the roofs and all the AC units were on the roof. So they got all new roofs, all new AC units. So they had, uh, they had only done about 80% of the work. So they had to finish that off. And then we got in this deal. This deal was, was a dump. If, uh, if I ever saw one, <laughs> it was just in a really good area. So like the guy, for example, was putting in used carpet when he was turning over units. So that's oh, wow. about the grossest thing I've ever heard of yeah. in, a, in the multifamily space. So there's a bunch of deferred maintenance. And so we uh, we got into the deal. Back in those days, you could potentially retrade a deal. You potentially get a price adjustment. We attempted to do it and we got summarily dismissed by the seller. So we ended up buying the deal at the price anyways, even though we kind of misled us on a, on a line item or two. There's some additional deferred maintenance we didn't quite account for when we were originally budgeting it. But it was such a deal. We knew it was a deal. It was below market rents and it had the easiest, obvious management upside. So we went forward with it anyways. So, that, so that's an interesting thing about all real estate. We don't really talk about this strategy very much, but... um. You know, you can, I guess if you, if you have a deal under contract, no matter what it is, big, big or small, and you find stuff that you don't like during the inspection period or during your due diligence, you can ask for a reduction, right? But like if they, the worst they can say is no, right? And then you just go and buy it anyway, if you want to. So there's really no major downside, right? Or, yeah. Uh, so, so the, the downside risk and, and if you're just doing, if you're just trying to deal up then try to retrade it, that what you're going to risk is reputation. Yeah. You know, yeah. Especially at a market. So, you know, if it's something like legitimate and then they or they misled you on something or there was 
you, know, you had no way of knowing that the roofs had hail on it because you, yep. you know you don't get on a ladder on a three-story building or something so those are legitimate reasons but if you still go the parking lot's messed up well, well you got eyes yeah. you should know the parking lot's messed up so just that the biggest risk is reputation so we don't tend to try to do that but sure. this deal we had we had some legitimate reasons and he just denied us anyways and we we decided to buy it yeah well and i think that's cool like i mean that again yeah i would not like i i don't play that game either where we try to like you know you know, get, get under contract and then try to bully them later. But like a lot of times stuff does come up in, in due diligence. So you shouldn't be necessarily afraid to ask for those things. I, for example, I actually, I should have done it here. I bought this property here in Hawaii, right? Like, and I, I got an inspection, but I didn't, I decided not to get to a pool inspection. And then I got here and I found out the entire, all the pool stuff was bad. I mean, had I got the inspection, then I would have come back to them and been a, Hey, you know, we inspected all the pool, you know, whatever. I don't know, I'm going to probably be like 10 grand into fixing the pool now. And I could have negotiated that earlier had I done the inspection. But anyway, all right. So you negotiated. How did you, actually, before I go there, what were rents like when you bought it and then when you sold it again? I'm curious, like, what did you guys be able to push? What did you push rents yeah, to? Yeah, I'm trying to remember exactly. But I think on average, we were somewhere around $650 in rents, okay. uh, give or take across the board. And then when we sold it, I think we were north of $1,000 in wow. rents. So that's, you know, we like literally doubled our net operating income when we owned it, like literally doubled. So it was, it was, um, this deal had, you know, an apartments, especially these older apartments. So, uh, utilities are a big deal. So this particular deal, we had upside in the rental rates. They were, I think at the time we figured they're about 20 or 25% below the market comps. In addition to that, they have property, all these older properties are, you know, master meter typically for water and sewer and yep. gas of that borders. And uh, in apartments, you implement what's called RUBS or RUBS, Ratio Utility Billing System. So basically, that's a fancy jargon for where you take the water bill and then you allocate it and then you bill a percentage of it back to each of the residents on the property. So we had both upside in increasing the rents as well as upside in, in, in increasing the bill backs plus adding you know admin fees and some other stuff. They just customarily weren't charging for that that we thought we all the competitor properties are doing that we could charge for. So those are the two ways. And on top of that, they had some high expenses like their their gas bill was out of control because they had a really old boiler. So we you know budgeted to replace the boiler, did a water conservation program. So we lowered the water bill along the way and a, a couple other expense savings that we, we could be able to implement. That's awesome. Let's talk about rubs for a second on that. Like the idea of shifting over the responsibility of the water to the tenant is one of my favorite things in the world on it when I buy a property. Like if I can do that, it like it takes a lot of the variables out of the equation, right? Because the water bill like could be 800 one month and 200 the next month because, you know, somebody left their shower running for a month because tenants will do that sometimes. Like, I mean, I've literally gone into units before and their faucet was like their, their, their bathtub faucet, whatever was broken. And it was running at full strength completely. And I'd ask them like, how long has it been doing this? And they're like, ah, since we moved in or, you know, something like that. And I'm like, (laughs) well, clearly it hadn't been since they moved in, but like at some point the faucet broke and it just runs and they didn't want anybody in their units. They didn't say anything. I don't know yeah. much how many gallons they wasted. But anyway, when you shift that over to the tenant, now they're going to be like, well, I don't want to pay for that water bill. So I'm going to get that fixed right away. But how do you know whether or not you can implement that? Like, uh, can you always do it? Do, yeah. So do the other competitor properties that I'm comp in mind to, do they do it? If, the, if it's uh, acceptable in the marketplace, then you should be able to implement it. If like-kind properties in similar areas do it, you could do it. So it's not raucous. That's a good thing about multifamily. It might, might sound intimidating, but... It's a really dumb, simple business, you know, just kind of follow the leader, very simple principles. You know, it's not always easy to do it, but it's really, really simple at the end of the day. 
You said something else I really like too. You said we replaced the boilers because they were inefficient. The gas bill was high. I think it's important to notice that you can get an ROI on your money in more ways than just acquiring a new property, right? Like you spent some money up front to fix something that someone who was cheaper might've thought, I'm not fixing that thing. It still runs, right? But I bet if you looked at it within a certain period of time, you would have recovered all that money and then you were making pure profit after that point. And a lot of times when you dump money into your properties, you get a return in the form of lower water bill, lower gas bill, better rent, and you make the property worth more so that you're benefiting on the, on the back end when you go to sell it. So, so the thing that is most critical and it was like a light bulb went off when I, when I kind of like, I always understood this, but when I, or I always knew this, but when I understood it, there's like a light bulb that went off. So the difference between, you know, single family and multifamily is, you know, single family, your property's worth what, you know, the neighboring properties are worth the CMA comparative market analysis. So I can, you got to buy it cheap enough, have enough money to renovate it. So it's then worth what the, what the neighboring properties are worth. Well, multifamily, you control your destiny because it's, it's NOI divided by cap rate. So if I can, increase, you know, if, if I'm in an environment like today, all this stuff's a five cap. So every dollar I drive to NOI is 20 to value. So let me repeat that. Every dollar to NOI is 20 to value. So if it costs me, you know, $5 to get 20 in value, it's a freaking no brainer, right? So the moment you realize and understand that it's like, why would I ever do a single family house again? <laughs> yeah, honestly. <laughs> yeah, I love that. Let's talk about funding. Like, how yep. did you fund this thing? You said in, you brought investors and a Fannie Mae something. Let's w- walk through that. Yeah. So we, uh, we had, I think, three or four uh, investors. So we had a couple of the high net worth guys put a little larger checks in the deal. And then we put, we, we put some money in the deal. I think we put about 10 or, 10 or 12% of the capital in. And we had three or four guys kind of for the, for the rest of it, a little larger checks in this deal. We needed about $2.7 million. So we paid, I think, 10.968 to be exact for the deal. We had about a million dollar renovation budget because there was a bunch of, bunch of work that needed to be done there. So all in all, about 12 million or so into the deal, got about $2.7 million loan. So the Delta was nine and some change, I think, in a, in a loan. So we got a 10-year, uh, 10-year fixed rate loan through Fannie Mae. So Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac are not the only two largest lenders on the single family space. They're the also two largest lenders on the multifamily space. So the other thing that is really uh, kind of life changing when I, when I kind of realized that is, um, you know, these Fannie Mae loans, you know, are, are you get, you get both floating or variable rates and fixed rates. They're typically say a 10 year term with a 30 year amortization. So you have a longer amortization. Nowadays you can get multiple years of interest only on the front end, three, four, five years of interest only today. Back at the time we got one, but the market's a little bit better today from the from that standpoint. And then they're all non-recourse. So, you know, so what that means is we have to sign what's commonly referred to as a bad boy carve out. So what that means is uh, you sign you sign a thing that you're not gonna commit a bad boy out, which is basically fraud or misrepresentation. So the example I like to use in Texas, we get hail. So if I have like an insurance, a hailstorm, I get an insurance check. I don't tell a lender about it. That's a bad boy act. So they can okay, bring yeah. in a guarantee. But, but if I, if I, you know, it's run the property and I'm just incompetent, I just can't, you know, I can't make the deal work and the deal fails or Dallas turns into Detroit and everyone moves out of the city, you know, <laughs> and, and I can't rent my units. You can just give the keys back and there's no uh, personal recourse to, to you as a borrower. So that's, that's powerful in, in that, that respect that it reduces the risk. What's even more powerful and is that it doesn't kind of cloud your balance sheet with contingent liabilities. So the, what, what I mean by that is, you know, I only have a certain amount of net worth and my partners do as well. And if I have all these, you know, why I don't know what I have, three, 400 million in, in debt or something like that right now out there. So that, you know, if I had 300 million in contingent liabilities, a banker's going to look at my net worth wise, you know, it's grown quite a bit. 
is nothing compared to that that kind yeah. of debt. So they might not be as apt to give me more loans, but all these loans are on recourse, so I could do more and more and more deals. So basically, I'm just limited to the amount, amount of money I can raise, my deals I can find. That's really my only limitation out there now. And the moment you kind of get to that realization, that's the other real power that you have in multifamily space over over the single family space. That makes sense. All right. Next question. What did you do with it? You know, I, I, you, I, you said something about refinancing it or pulling out capital and. Yeah. So we, we went through uh, our basic business plan was we went through, we cured all the deferred maintenance, you know, we, and then we uh, set aside some money for some upgrades. So we had, uh, we had upgraded the pool area. We added a playground. We added upgraded the office signage package, things like that. Then we went into the units, flooring, appliances, light fixtures, plumbing fixtures, painted it, resurfaced the countertops, kind of your basic apartment turnover upgrade. And through those efforts, through, you know, curing the deferred maintenance, through, you know, improving the management style and then adding some amenities and better product, we're able to get those higher rents from the tenants. By extension, we increased the value. So along the way, uh, you know, about two years into it, we went to a lender and said, hey, we took the value from $11 million and now we're 16 or 17 or whatever it was at that time. And they gave us almost a $3 million loan in the interim, which is a supplemental loan. So that's another uh, unique advantages to the Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac loans. They, uh, they're assumable as well. So if I own a mortgage and, uh, and you know, own a property, have a mortgage, I can sell it to you, Brandon, and you can come take over my mortgage and assume my mortgage and buy the property and just kind of put the difference down. So it's assumable as well as allow supplemental financing. So allow you to re-leverage a loan to 70 or 75% if I come in and increase the, the net operating income and by extension the value. So it's a really flexible product. So there's, there's a lot of good things. So we put a supplemental loan on it. We owned it for a little bit longer. And then uh, and then a couple of years ago or a couple of months ago, earlier this year, a gentleman, a broker who sold us a deal and a guy we sold three or four deals to that came to us and started giving us unsolicited offers to buy the property from us because we've already transacted on a few other deals. And then uh, so we kind of brought a few other people in ran like a little mini kind of uh, marketing process, got a number that worked. It was too much money to say no to. So we took it and, uh, and moved on uh, to bigger and better pastures out there. So. All right. What lessons did you learn from this specific transaction? Uh, you know, make sure that you have your, your capital set aside up front. I think this deal, we uh, got a little scary on the front end of the deal where we, uh, the tenant profile that was in place that would, that would accept a unit that had, uh, used carpet, for example, and all this deferred maintenance, you know, it was a little deeper, deeper dive. So I kind of I describe these value add multifamily deals. It's kind of like a check mark. You kind of go down and then you go up. So, you know, I think our dip was a little deeper, David, than, than what I really thought it would be. You know, we were kind of thinking we can hold about 90% occupancy and we were down to low 80s. So that kind of stressed cash flow until we were able to kind of turn over all these units. But, you know, it takes about a year, year and a half to kind of go unit by unit, month by month these units over and then once we kind of got through it uh, i was a little bit better so the deeper the the, the crappier the property the deeper your dip's gonna be so uh subsequent deals we've, we've kind of uh, underwritten a little deeper dip when we see a little bit more distress within the property you know that's the first time we've actually heard anyone or at least i've heard anyone describe the process as like that check mark but that's that's exactly what you see i even see it in a much smaller degree in the single family space where i tell people in my first year of owning a property i don't expect it to cash flow at all because there's always things that I did not get fixed during the initial rehab that pop up during that first year that kill your cash flow. And it doesn't mean you did something wrong. It means your expectations were wrong. Like I just tell myself the first year, it's not going to make me any money. I'm going to be dumping money into this leak or that thing that broke or this dry rot I didn't catch. And then when you get it all fixed, rent starts to go up and it turns around. 
I think with, with single family, it's almost though like you can change direction very quick because you're out there with like a jet ski, right? Like, I don't like the direction it's going. Boom, I can turn it around fast. Or with multifamily, you're out there, Michael, trying to turn around an aircraft carrier. Like, it's going to take a year and a half to get you to get that whole thing spun around, but it's immensely powerful once it is, you know, yeah. like that. The, the wealth you created in this one deal to me is just amazing. Yeah, it's life-changing is really what, what it was. And, you know, one of the things I like to say about apartments, it's kind of like adult daycare in a lot, a lot of ways, which you don't have that with single family. You have all these residents in close proximity to each other. And then, you know, if you have a drug dealer in Unit 202, it's going to affect all the units in and around that deal. So th- those are some of the things that you have on the on the multifamily side. You have the city as well. You don't have as much of that on the single family side. They don't really come mess with you on the single family side too much. On the apartment side, they'll do like an annual inspection and give you, you know, correction notices and all these things you have to, uh, you know, kind of manage the city on top of all the tenants and all those things. So it's, you know, it's a, it's a, you own real estate, but really you also own an operating business. It's kind of just wrapped in, in real estate. There you go. I love it. All right. Well, that is the end of the deal deep dive. Now we're going to shift gears here and head over to the world famous fire. fire. It's time for the fire round. All right, let's get to the fire round. These questions come direct out of the Bigger Pockets forums, and we're going to fire them right at you, Michael. So, first one We're in the process of purchasing our first multifamily. It's four buildings, a 24 unit, a six unit, five unit, eight unit. Wondering what detail of inspection is common for this. I mean, costs add up really quickly. Like, do I have to check the gas line, uh, like the sewer line? Should I have an inspector walk through every unit? What would you yeah. suggest? So there's two components when you're doing a multifamily site inspection. There's a physical inspection and there's a financial audit as well. So on the physical side, yeah, I'd get all, uh, we, we tend to have our management company and or there's a vendor locally that kind of is an engineer that'll do these reports for you. But yeah, I would walk literally every unit uh, if you can, because you, like I said, even even the occupied units, you got, you'd be shocked with some of the conditions that some people are willing to accept in their yep. units. And if you don't properly budget for it, but yeah, get a vendor out, check the roof parking lot, AC, kind of do a basic AC survey, get a plumber out, maybe put a camera down the sewer lines, check out all the major components. Cause if you miss something, I mean, you can talk $20,000 on a smaller deal that can swing quite a bit on a bigger deal. It's a rounding error, but only smaller deals that can certainly add yeah. up. Certainly do that as well as you need to make sure you, you do a good lease file audit. So you're making your offer based off the financial information that the seller provides you. So he gives you, he or she gives you a rent roll. So you need to go check lease by lease, the tenant name, start date, end date, lease amount security deposits, make sure they match the files that are on hand, as well as we always try to get copies of bank statements and utility bills so we can at least match the numbers they give me on the water sewer bill, match what the water sewer bills actually are, and their deposits somewhat are in line with the revenue they produce. I don't care as much about what their insurance is or what um, what their payroll number is, because I'm going to operate it the way I'm going to operate to my budget. So that doesn't impact me as much, but the water bills are kind of consistent from ownership to ownership. What do you say to people who worry like this? Like, I don't want to spend money inspecting a property. Do I really have to? Uh, How do you correct that mindset? You should stop buying real estate because you're going to lose all your money. (laughs) I mean, that's that's such a short-sighted thought to have. You know, you're you're talking, I I don't know how many numbers you just rattled off, but you're talking 40-ish units. They're spending a couple million dollars, most likely, unless it's in the hood in Detroit or something like that. But, you know, it's a couple million dollar transaction. So you're not going to spend $5,000 in pursuit costs. Yeah, that's that's foolish. You're stepping over dollars to get dimes. All right. That's a great way. Okay, next question. Oh, this is a good one. 
How do I do my first multifamily syndication with no money down? Should I even try? This is not a, in my experience to do this right, this is not a no money down business. I mean, at least not in scale. You're not going to get someone to give you a hundred unit deal to, to do it. Maybe you can have someone send, sell you a six, seven, eight unit deal, kind of a mom and pop. That, that might work there. But you need to get uh, as high paying job as you can, sacrifice some, some lifestyle, save some money, maybe do start in a single family space, wholesale, flip, accumulate some capital. And then once you get, you know, 50,000, 100,000, then you start putting, that together. That that's one of the things that I've kind of really been the most interesting things. There's you know one two things really. One, how do you scale it? How do you how do you manage the 800k ones I have to do? How do you you know I'm a dumb banker. I didn't know how to have employees and do yeah. all that kind of stuff and systematize your business. And then the other thing is as you go up in this business, when you put a house on a contract, maybe you put two thousand, three thousand, five thousand in earnest money. When you buy a uh, when you buy a thirty million dollar apartment complex, you know we've had a million dollars hard on a deal uh, out of the gate, right? Yeah. So how do you how do you scale your pursuit cost so you don't jump into that out of the gate? You got to have some confidence level. You got to know what you're doing before you're willing to put your 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 cojones out there like that to uh, to, to to make sure you're going to get the deal done. And so you know having to having to think through as you go from a ten unit to fifty unit to hundred unit, the price of poker goes up on the pursuit cost on the earnest money on the lender fees, on your lawyer fees, all those things that if the deal blows up, that's on you as a sponsor. So making sure you have a plan and you you, you think that through as you, you scale your business up. So if you don't have it, find a partner that does. I like that. It's kind of like saying, uh, how do I play poker without having to pay the blinds? Yeah. Right? Like I, w- I want to be in the yeah. game, but I don't want to have to risk any money or spend anything to do my due diligence. It's just, you shouldn't be doing it at all. And like Brandon and I talk all the time because everybody has that question is, how do I invest in real estate with no money? And you can be in deals. I do it all the time with none of my own money ends up in the deal. Or sometimes I pull out more than what I even put in when I use the Burr method. But I took money to get into the position where I could get the money back out, right? You have to have some form of money. And I love, love, love your answer. I mean, that should be like the thing that we take from this episode and put on Instagram of the the path to success is get a good job, make good money, get good at what you're doing, save your money. Now that money has some value to you because it's tied to hours and sacrifice you made. So you don't want to go out there and blow it, invest it, learn what you're doing to get at that and then bring other people in once you've got kind of like your system figured out. So that was an amazing answer. Well, thank you. Yeah. (laughs) All right. Next one. I'm going to be looking to purchase three multifamily properties from a seller liquidating their portfolio. One's a 75 unit, one's a 50 unit, one's a 50 unit. So it's a total of 175. Uh, uh, let's see. Um, I'll be purchasing through an LLC. I'm going to get bank financing. So should I try to get one loan, one commercial loan on all three, or should I get three separate loans? Yeah. So I, I would uh, first want to know how close in proximity the deals are to each other. So okay. if they're contiguous, you know, if they're contiguous to each other, you can legitimately run them as one apartment building. It might make sense to get one loan. Uh, I don't like the idea of getting one loan. If you do get one loan, I'd make sure they have what's called a partial release provision within their their loan documents that if you want to go sell the one of the 50 unit deals off, you don't have to pay your entire mortgage off. You have a, the ability to partially pay down that note. I think it makes more sense to get three separate mortgages that way. And if they're close to proximity but not contiguous, you could potentially share some of the staff or you maybe have one one of the places have an office and they lease the other two buildings out of, out of the larger building or something along those lines. But I, I like the idea of having three separate loans or at least having partial lease provisions within the mortgage. All right. I like it. Last question of the day. Well, of the fire round anyway. David Green. <laughs> 
All right. Last question. Should I start with multifamily or should I start with single family? You know, I don't think there's a right or wrong answer. So it just kind of depends on on the amount of resources you have. I had enough money. I had a background where I didn't, and with the benefit of uh, hindsight, I didn't necessarily need the single family space. I could have jumped into the multifamily space. What the single family space really got me to do is it really got me in the position where I learned how to do a deal, go full cycle, give me some level of confidence that I can project manage on a very small scale. And then I was able to kind of implement some systems and and build and repeat. Um, You know, and I I almost personally like a single family house more than if you're buying like a a triplex or fourplex. You know, I think that's a little bit better in my my personal opinion than buying a a really small multifamily. So if you can't buy a 20, 30 unit deal, I might might suggest you go into the single family. Now, one of the things one of my mentors told me a long time ago, and this is extremely true, and the smaller the property, the more true the statement is, is when you own multifamily deals, you kind of own them in dog years. You know, so every year of ownership feels like you've owned it for seven. Yeah. The smaller that property is, the more true that statement is. You know, multifamily, the, the real power of it is just the scale, economies of scale. So if you can't have, you know, uh, enough, a large enough property that produces enough revenue that you can afford to have uh, full-time on-site maintenance staff and full-time on-site management staff, you got to manage it offsite. It just becomes really challenging. So I think the goal that that I would uh, try to put out there for people, that, you know, you want to you want to get in the business and get to a point you can buy large enough property that to support full time staff on the actual asset. Until you get there, everything else is real efficient. So you know, people get in this business, they either love it or they hate it. You know, one or two things going to happen. You buy a a fifty unit deal, man, I love this. I can't wait to sell it, scale up, buy something bigger. Or man, I hate this thing. This sucks. We sell it and never do it again. So, you know, if you own these things in dog years, if you kind of use that little little saying, you'll kind of you kind of the smaller that that the, the property is, the more true that statement is. Yeah. So you're gonna get in, wanna scale up, or you're gonna want to get out, one of the two. What do you recommend is a good like break-even number for how big of units people should be looking for so that it's worth their time and the no, toll? Uh it's really depending on how much revenue it produces and every area is different. So I think in the, in the state of California, if you have 16 units or more, you have to have an on-site resident. So I think that's unique to California. That's certainly not in Texas. But generally speaking, in our markets, we win the right about one full-time uh, office person, one full-time maintenance person for about every 100 units we have. So you know, I think about 60, 65 units in our market should justify a full-time uh, manager maintenance. It won't be as efficient as you have you know, 35 less units and kind of what the optimal uh, size would be. So the closer you can get to that 100 unit, the better. But with that said, I mean, you know, people make money on these small deals. People start with what they have. You know, that when you're getting in this business, you're starting out. You just got to be realistic. Take an account of what you have, what things you can bring to the table. How do you find other people to kind of fill in the gaps that you have? And there's nothing wrong with a single family house or an eightplex. It's whatever you can make work. But you know, if you want it to be in this business, you want to be a professional. You want to scale. You know, you need to do these larger deals, or you just can't scale your business. Well said. Well said. All right. Well, let's head over to the last segment of the show, which we lovingly call our famous four. Let's get to the famous four. Number one, these are the same four questions we ask every guest every week. And now we're going to throw them at you, Michael. Number one, what's your favorite real estate related book? I like, I like the two Ken McElroy books, the ABCs, the Real Estate Investing and the Advanced Real Estate Investing Guide. So Ken, Ken's my buddy. I'm not the biggest reader, but I actually read those books after I was uh, uh, did a few deals, so, so I was very heartened when I when I saw Ken's business model is very similar to the way we we operate. Cool, yeah, those are fantastic books. All right, all right. What is your favorite business book? 
One of the books I read, one of the guys I kind of look up to is Sam Zell. So Sam Zell came out with a book about a year ago. I'm not being too subtle. So I really, I really like that book. He, he's a master of scale. So I, I've really got a few nuggets out of that on how to kind of grow your business and scale it up. Cool. I'd not oh. heard of that one. Wow. Congrats on finding a book that Brandon hasn't already read. <laughs> <laughs> that it's is only a- worth $7 billion. So you might, you might want to check that one out. I'll check that so, one out. So. All right. What about hobbies? What are your hobbies? Uh, so I like to travel. So I'm going to go to Ireland, uh, for my turn 40 in, uh, in a few days, so nice. my 40th birthday I'm go over to Ireland. So I'm, I'm looking forward to that. I if did. You, uh, uh, I, I was going to say I did Ireland a couple years ago. Make sure you do the, if you can do the air and islands, uh, there's, it, it's the worst sea ride over there. Like the boat is the worst thing ever, but it's the, one of the coolest things I've ever seen in my entire life is over on the air and islands. So awesome. I recommend it. My comment was much less practical. I was going to say, if we have you on again, you need to do the whole thing in an Irish accent so make sure <laughs> while you're over there. I'll, I'll work on it. Yeah. Uh, all right. Final question from me. What do you believe sets apart successful real estate investors from those who give up, fail, or never get started? I think it's, there's a lot of determination and uh, pers- uh, perseverance you need to have in this business. You know, like I said, what I what I like about real estate, what I like about single family, what I like about multifamily, it's a really dumb business. It's really, really simple. You know, it's just not always easy. So you're going to have some challenges. You, you're going to have to deal with some adversity. The city, you're going to have a tenant issue. You know, one of the things I, I kind of, I've learned through this business, if you own enough large apartment buildings, you know, three things are going to happen. You know, you, there's going to be a fire. Your tenants are going to sue you and people will die on your properties. Right. So yeah. if, if I don't want to deal with stuff like that, you know, then I should go back to be a banker again. You know, and then I have to deal with my 401k and not having the, the lifestyle I want to have and being able to go to Ireland for 10 days on my own whenever the hell I want to. So there's always a trade off with everything in life. But having some perseverance, being able to, to deal with some some of the challenges as you come and you find out once you kind of overcome it. You know, it's, it's kind of like being, uh, I'll compare myself to like a professional basketball player, you know, or, or a football player. When you first get out of college and you go into the pros, everything seems really, really fast to you because, you know, you go on from, from the college level to the pro level. It's kind of similar in real estate, you know, now yeah. not saying I'm constantly surprised by things I see all the time, but you know, more and more I've, I've either seen this exact scenario or something similar to it. I don't need it. It's not a, uh, I don't have to reinvent the wheel every time something comes at me. I've already kind of seen it. I know what the right answer is and I just do it. Move on. I think that is such a profound analogy that you use. Thank you for using analogy on the show. I had to uh, my house, talk to my wife and uh, <laughs> <laughs> have you uh, speak great about me, George. The, the problem is newbies, like everyone is new at something. Most of the time, if you're listening to a podcast, you're in the educational, like, phase of the cycle and you're new, right? Like people that are really good at this aren't usually seeking education. So people that are likely to listen to a podcast like this are in that, man, I just got into the pros and this is fast. Like these guys are strong. The game moves so quickly. I I miss half a step and boom, I'm beat, right? Like this is guys that are really good at what they do. And they start to feel like it will always be this way and I'm never going to catch up. And this just sucks, right? But you're saying, hey, no, you will adapt to it. You will adjust. There's only so many things that can go wrong. And it's not rocket science. It's not easy, but it's very simple. And if you stick with it, you'll start to figure it out. And everything in life kind of works that way. And that's why, you know, we always say like persistence is so important because if you just stay playing the game long enough, your brain will adapt, your body will adapt. You'll, you'll improve in the areas where you are weak and it will get easier. And then it's fun. Then you can go to Ireland for 10 days. You know, when I first became a real estate agent, oh my God, it was so frustrating Everything was new. I didn't know anything like talking to people, calming people that down that were upset. It was all a different skill set that I didn't have yet. 
And then I just got back from being in Hawaii with Brandon for like 12 days. And it was as smooth as things could ever be. I came back with three listing appointments set up and we closed on about four houses while I was there. And my team had things running and it wasn't hard at all. But man, if you'd have told me that two years ago, I wouldn't have believed you because it just yeah. too hard. And the, the other thing too, that I'll kind of leave you guys on is one of the things that I, I really, I think is a great advantage about, about what I do is this uh, completely unfair business, right? So it's who, you know, what, you know, what chips you could trade, what relationships, what deals you've done. And when you're starting out, that really sucks. Cause you're on the wrong side of that more than you're on the right side of that. But once you get into this, you know, a good example is, uh, you know, two years ago, one of the top brokers in town, his family and my family went on a Disney cruise, right? My 40th birthday parties in two weeks. And, you know, seven or eight of the top apartment brokers in Dallas Fort Worth are going to be at my birthday party. Right. So it's a completely unfair business. You know, we're all buddies (laughs) and we're, we're friends. And and when they get that deal, you know, they're not going to call you that's never done it. They're going to call me. And if I pass and we'll start going down the, down the line. So you just got to get yourself in a position. You got to be a person of integrity, do what you say you're going to do, follow through, close these deals, get a track record, and then you'll get yourself on the right side of that unfairness. Drops the mic. I love it. That's cool. Boom. <laughs> All right, dude, this was fantastic. So I, I won't rob your last question, David. You want to ask it? Uh, yeah, like it wouldn't bother me if you did, but thank you, Brandon, <laughs> for, for passing me that. I'm a nice guy. Michael, where can people find out more about you? Well, there's, there's two ways uh, you can find information about me. Uh, we have a uh, we have a podcast I host with one of my, uh, one of my uh, partners. Uh, my background is banking, so... Uh, it's called the Old Capital Real Estate Investing Podcast. It's Old Capital Real Estate Investing Podcast or oldcapitalpodcast.com. You can find it anywhere you're hearing me today. You can likely find it at iTunes, Stitchers. Or the other way, simply the, the way we do business is uh, through my company, SPI Advisory. So just go to our company's website, which is www.spi, like spyadvisory.com. There's a contact us form. I'm always happy to have a 10 or 15 minute telephone call with people I, I uh, meet off of a podcast. All right. Awesome. Very cool. All right. Well, thank you, Michael. This has been fantastic. I've learned a ton and my mind is is racing right now. So this is really good for me and uh, hopefully our audience as well. So thank you. We'll see you around. Thank you guys for having me. Appreciate it. All right. That was our show with Michael Becker. Fantastic. That guy is just like on fire with his multifamily. That's amazing. Yeah. He's so good that he just describes it in a way that makes it so simple that you realize like, man, I could be doing this too. And that's what I love. Like, you know, someone's good at what they do when they describe it in a way that makes it sound simple as opposed to complicated. Yeah, it's true. And like, I I love the idea too. I'm glad he's covered the webinar thing because nobody really talks about that on the show of like using webinars to raise money or, you know, like why those are so powerful. So yeah, super cool. All right. Well, guys, I hope you enjoyed this interview as well. Make sure you guys stick around for next week. We got a really fun interview next week with a TV celebrity. You'll find out more next week on the podcast, but stay tuned for that. And the one after that, actually, Mr. Josh Dorkin may be coming back and kicking David Green off the show uh, for episode number 300. But you didn't hear that here. I don't know. I don't know what you're talking about. What? What? Let's get out of here. I sit on the throne of the king and he is welcome to come take back the Iron Throne anytime he <laughs> likes. All right. Well, guys, thank you so much, David. Thank you, Rosie. Thank you for being so happy and cheerful. Rosie's in the background hanging out with me on the on my lanai here. So with that, guys, let's get out of here. For BiggerPockets.com, I'm Brandon. Dave, you want to take us out? See you guys later. You're listening to Bigger Pockets Radio, simplifying real estate for investors large and small. If you're here looking to learn about real estate investing without all the hype, you're in the right place. 
Be sure to join the millions of others who have benefited from BiggerPockets.com, your home for real estate investing online. The market is changing and finding your way can be tricky. Rates shift, headlines whirl, but your goal hasn't changed. You want financial freedom and the best investors know it's not about timing the market. It's about time in the market. If you're ready to get into the real estate investing game or take your game to the next level, finding an investor-friendly agent is your next step. With BiggerPockets Agent Finder, you can find the right agent in minutes. Just head to biggerpockets.com deals and enter a few details about what and where you want to buy and bam, instantly match with an investor-friendly agent who fits the bill. These local market experts can help you navigate the neighborhoods, analyze the numbers, and take action with confidence once and for all. This free resource is only available at biggerpockets.com deals. Get an agent, get the deal, and get closer to financial freedom at biggerpockets.com deals. That's biggerpockets.com deals to find your investor-friendly agent today. The content of this podcast is for informational purposes only. Past performance is not indicative of future results, and all hosts and participant opinions are their own. Investment in any asset, real estate included, involves risk. Use your best judgment and consult with qualified advisors before investing. Only risk capital you can afford to lose. BiggerPockets LLC disclaims all liability for direct, indirect, consequential, or other damages arising from reliance upon information presented in this podcast.